um, a little over five years ago. Um, I started uh, as lead pastor in this church. I followed um, the pastor who had been the senior pastor here for 27 years. And um, that's not always an easy thing to do, but it's a lot easier to do when the person who has been here for 27 years is as gracious and humble and helpful and encouraging as um, Bert DeYoung is and has been in the time that I've been here. Um, after he retired, Bert, about six months later, decided to come back as our um, congregational care assistant, which means that he is what we like to call internally our first responder. Um, if someone's in the hospital, if someone's in distress, if someone has difficulty, uh, if someone passes away, Bert is the first one there. And um, it's a real gift that he has. We're grateful to have him um, in our um, congregation and to serve in that capacity because he has been your pastor for um, so long and it's a familiar face showing up uh, in your time of need. That's always very comforting as well. Um, it doesn't always work when someone who is a pastor for 27 years stays in a church uh, after they retire, but it works here because Bert is such um, an encourager and someone who really uh, wants the church to thrive and be healthy first over any kind of his own personal needs. And so it's always great when we can have uh, Bert give a chance to uh, bring the word to his people that he served for so long. And so it's our honor and privilege this morning to have Bert DeYoung as our preaching pastor. Bert? It's okay to thank Bert. It's hey. <laughs> and do you know he's not in the least threatened by me, right? Is there anything that threatens him? I'm not sure there is. Um, I love having a pastor. He's my pastor. And I love being in a, a body of faith that's been important for uh, longer than any other body of faith I've been part of all my life. And so Celia and I are just so, my wife and I are so deeply grateful that we continue to have a place here at Elmhurst Church, not only to uh, serve with you, but to love you and to be loved by you and just to love God with you. It's it's a great church. And if you're a guest here this morning and you're wondering, you know, is this a place where we could belong? Is this a place where we would fit? Is this a place where God could help us grow? I'd hope you'd have our experience that uh, God is here as are his people. And um, it's just a good church. It really is. You ought to believe that. Thank God for it. So friends, if uh, you've been around after Easter, you know that Rev has been walking us through the book of James and we've come through the first chapter and in that first chapter, it seems like the whole theme is about uh, growing individually. That is, as a believer, coming to maturity in Jesus. We want to invite people to know Jesus, then we want to help them become more like Jesus, and then we want them to serve as Jesus. And we've been thinking about what it's like to become like Jesus individually. We've talked about those things that have to do with the personal inner self, but this morning we're going to take a turn in quite a different direction. The assumption is that once God has done his work in our individual hearts, he's going to then shape us as a body, a community, and each of us has our own place in this body. And I genuinely believe that this congregation is only going to be as healthy as every individual member in it. And who you are and where you are in your faith has a very specific link 
to who we are and to what God is doing in this congregation. So we need to take very seriously our own spiritual development. And James has talked about that as Rev has led us through the first chapters. What has suffering done in your life? We know what it is to suffer. Some of you are suffering this morning as you have not in some time. We've had the, the news of the passing of one of the dear members of this congregation, a member for over 40 years, Raj Grunblum, his family, suffering as they have not perhaps suffered before, dealing with loss. You have your own stories of that. You have your own stories of pain and hurt that have come into your life. How is God molding you through those things? What happens to you when you find yourself in that situation? And then we talked about those personal desires, not the things that come at us from without, but the things that are inside of us that threaten to rip us apart. What are the desires that tear at my soul and that tug me away from God? And then last week, we talked about listening and being part of a community of faith in which every individual has the opportunity and ability to hear clearly what is being said by all the others around them. How good are we at listening? Are we quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry? Now, all of that has to do with my personal spiritual development. But in chapter 2, which is where we're headed this morning, James takes the turn from what's been happening in me to how that impacts all of us. What kind of community of faith are we? What sort of church are we? And there's a logic to that, I think, right? We believe that God has a kingdom that will transform this world. The Bible talks about that in all kinds of passages. God's big picture is to put this world under the rule of Jesus Christ his son, our savior. And we have a part in that. And the part that we have in that is a part as a church. So the big goal of transforming this world in the name of Jesus is accomplished through God's people, the church. And God's people, the church, are formed as each individual within that church is formed. So it goes from the biggest picture to a community of saints to the individual. Now we're working that backwards. We're going to talk about how a transformed individual is part of a transformed community. And that's where we'll find ourselves this morning. So we're going to begin with chapter 2 of the book of James. And here's the opening verse. And I'm going to spend more time in the opening verse than I will on the next 12 verses, so don't panic as time goes by and we're still in verse 1, all right? My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Folks, that's the whole sermon. Three words. Don't show favoritism. I love the book of James. I've loved the series that we're in. I love it because it is so practical. You can't miss the point. And that's the great thing about preaching the book of James. But the challenge of preaching the book of James is if it's so practical, you can't miss the point, and you can get a sermon in three words, why preach a sermon, right? I mean, what more is there to say than don't show favoritism? Let's find out what more there is to say. Let's tear the words apart. Now we're going to go back to that first slide. Uh, I haven't come close to ending that yet. 
my brothers. Um, James uses that word three times in this passage. My brothers. So he's talking about those who are part of a community, right? Our tendency would be to think don't show favoritism is something that we're going to bring to the world and we want to stand and preach a message of social justice, a world in which there is an egalitarian concern in which everybody is treated the same, in which everything is just the way it ought to be. And certainly there are those passages in Scripture and there are those themes in the Bible in which the whole world is impacted by the gospel, but that really isn't his concern here. He's not talking to the whole world. He's talking to his brothers. He's talking to the church. So what we need to do is very carefully understand that this business of favoritism isn't something we're going to fix out there. It's something we have to address in here. Favoritism as an issue in a body of faith. He says, my brothers, as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. My brothers, as believers. Now, last week, at the end of verse uh, at the end of chapter 1, Rev talked about this passage in which people are addressed as you who are religious. But here at the beginning of chapter 2, James talks about you who are believers. Is there a difference between religious people and believers? Well, I think there is. And I think it's important to notice, especially in what we're going to say about favoritism. At the end of chapter 1, religion is described as a certain way of behaving. It's what you do. Here in chapter 2, believing is a heart relationship. It's a commitment that we have to something much deeper, greater than ourselves. It's what we think, what we believe, who we are. We are believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that distinction plays out in our world today when you hear people say, well, I'm not very religious, but I am very spiritual. You kind of get the distinction? When they say that, they mean, I don't do religious things, like I may not go to church, or I may not be a person of prayer, or I may not really read the Bible all that much, but I want you to know I'm a really spiritual person. I have deep feelings and commitments about things. James is suggesting to us that those two, that is, believing and behaving, are inseparably linked. What you believe ought to be how you behave, and how you behave is determined by what you believe. So when you hear things like, you know, I'm not very religious, but I'm very spiritual, you have to wonder, why does somebody say something like that? James brings those two thoughts together, and he says to the church, those of you who are believers, who have a hard commitment to Jesus Christ, need to adopt certain behaviors. That is, don't show favoritism. All right, so let's come to the words themselves. Don't show favoritism. I want to begin by saying what that verse does not say. And then we'll go into what it does say. And he's going to give us the example of what it says. What does that verse not say? That verse does not teach us that in every relationship and at all times, we should show no partiality. This is not a condemnation of all favoritism, and we need to understand that. And if you think about what the Bible has to say in different places, you'll understand that to be true. Peter, for example, when he writes to the believers who are scattered by persecution, says that we need to be in prayer for those who 
have a responsibility for us. He says that we need to show proper respect to everyone, 1 Peter 2.17. And in that chapter, he's talking about kings and governors and masters. And we would say, in our world, we need to show proper respect to our president, regardless of political party, to the members of our government, to those who have some responsibility over us. We need to show proper respect. That's not favoritism. That is simply obedience to the word of God. So when he says don't show favoritism, it doesn't mean you treat everybody the same. There's an example of that that happens in Acts chapter 23. You think about Paul, who is a missionary pastor, who's giving a testimony of his faith. And in the audience of the testimony, hearing his testimony, is the high priest of the Jewish religion, a man named Ananias. Paul doesn't know that the high priest of the Jewish religion is listening to his testimony about being a follower of Jesus. And so he says some things that really irritate the high priest. And the high priest gets so angry while he's listening to Paul, he says, hit him in the mouth. That's exactly what he says to the people around Paul. Hit him in the mouth. And Paul, who's got a little bit of a temper himself, says, God's going to hit you in the mouth, you whitewashed wall. And then one of the guys who are listening to these two guys ready to go at each other says, hey, you're talking to the high priest. And in Acts 23, Paul says, hey, brother, I'm sorry. I didn't know I shouldn't talk to the high priest that way. The Bible says you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. So even Paul, in that really emotional interchange, understands that there is a favoritism to be shown, a respect to be shown to persons based on their position, their responsibilities, their place in our lives. So when you read this word from James, it doesn't mean that everybody gets treated the same. It simply isn't true. It's not true for James. It's not true in the rest of the scripture. Don't show favoritism. Not quite done with the first verse. As believers in our Lord, in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, glorious Lord Jesus Christ, that little phrase tells us why favoritism is something that should have no part, no place in the life of Elmhurst Christian Reformed Church. As believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it says that Jesus is glorious, but literally the language says, and it's a little awkward, and you know, Literally, the language says, in Jesus Christ, the glory. So it's not exactly that he is glorious. It is rather that he is the glory. Jesus is the glory. So as believers in Jesus, the glory, we are not to show favoritism. Now, why would that be the case? Well, what is Jesus or who is Jesus, the glory? Take it back to another moment in the life of Jesus in the New Testament. He's with three of his friends and they climb this high mountain. They get to the top of the mountain and something incredible occurs. We read that in, in, um, we read in the Gospels that suddenly Jesus is transformed. He's changed. He's like a brilliant light as bright as lightning. And, and in that transformation that's described as his glory. This shining, penetrating burst of light in the person of Jesus. It's not this kind of um, ethereal, uh, smoke machine, gauzy 
kind of hazy Jesus in a diffused light, and people look at him and say, oh. It is a light that is so powerful in impact, it's like a punch to the soul. It's like, whoa. You get the difference, right? The glory of Jesus is that that just drives a person deep into their soul to understand who he is and what he's about. It's not like, oh, it's wow. An incredible place in the depth of our being. That is Jesus, the glory. That is Jesus who is at the creation of this world by whose word the world came to be. That is Jesus who knew Moses when Moses was a kid all the way to the end of his life until he met him again at the top of the mountain with his three friends. That is Jesus who went to a cross carrying the whole weight of human sin on his shoulders. That is Jesus who said, it's finished, folks, it's over. And the full price of human sin was paid. That is Jesus who walked out of a grave to the news, he is not here, he is risen. That is Jesus who's at the right hand of God interceding for the people of God at this day. That's Jesus, the glory. And when in church we show favoritism, we dim the light of the glory of Jesus. Get it? That really is how important it is. John Calvin puts it this way. The, the language is archaic, but I just think he is so right on. Look, he says, so great is the brightness of Christ that it easily extinguishes all the glories of the world. If indeed it irradiates our eyes, it hence follows that Christ is little esteemed by us when the admiration of worldly glory lays hold on us. When the glory of people outshines the glory of Jesus, something is wrong in the body of faith. And now James is going to give us a story. I told Matt this morning, you know, every sermon you try to find a story that kind of catches the point, well, I don't have one because his is so much better than mine. So we're just going to use James' story of what happens when uh, favoritism takes place in the church. He writes, suppose a man comes into your meeting, and that's why I said this has to do with the church. This is about out in the world. This is here and now. This is us. And a man um, comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. Gold apparently was the uh, measure by which personal wealth and significance was measured in that day. I suppose it is today too, right? And a poor man in shabby clothes, and by the way, the word poor there in the original language doesn't mean some guy who's really working hard and, and uh, having just a hard time making a living. We're talking about homeless. This is a person without any resource at all. The kind of person you see pushing a shopping cart down Roosevelt Road, you know, trying to find a place to stay for the, end, for the, uh, for the night. Suppose that that man takes a turn into your church on a Sunday morning, and it says, if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes, and you say, well, here's a good seat for you. But say to the poor man, you know, uh, would you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet? Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Well, we get that, right? The stranger walks in and we're all sort of checking him out. See how she looks. 
What's she wearing? How does she present herself? How does she carry herself? You can't show favoritism, says James. You can't do that. You can't look at somebody and make the judgment on the basis of what you see. This is how I'm going to treat them. It cannot be done. It dims the glory of Jesus. It's a transformed community. doesn't allow that. So he goes on to say, listen, dear brothers. Now, this next section is going to make a little, uh, some of us just a little uncomfortable. Probably should. Makes me uncomfortable. Because by the standards of this world, I am rich. And um, you probably are too. Listen, my dear brothers. So look at those first words. Listen. Rev talked about that last week. Are you, are you able to hear this? No defensiveness about this. Don't get all, you know, just listen. Dear brothers. I mean, it's the language of love. It's not something he's going to beat us over the head with. He said, I like you people. You're my brothers, you're my sisters, so just listen to this. All right. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? You think of all of those stories of poor, helpless, hopeless people chosen and loved by God. It doesn't say that's all that God loves. It doesn't say that's all that God has chosen. You have insulted the poor. Isn't it the rich who are exploiting you? Aren't they the ones who are dragging you into court? Are not they the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? People, says James, it's often those with the most who create the biggest issues in your life. And then he gives examples of what that would be. It would be a wealthy person who looks at a poor person and says, why don't you just get a job? And you demean someone the instant you begin to think on the basis of appearance. You can say that about anybody. A wealthy person can exploit a poor person. How many stories do we need about ministry and churches in which poor people are deprived of the little they have by the greed of those who are their spiritual leaders? You know, you can read about that stuff almost every week in the newspaper. There's a story about that in the paper um, the past few days, right? Aren't they the ones dragging you into court? Aren't they the people with the resources who can make your life miserable until finally you cave in because you haven't got the resources they do? So James sort of piles on and piles on and piles on and says, look, so many of the things that are going wrong, even in our community, are created by people who think they are entitled and have privilege and nobody else really matters because they are at a place where other people are not. So we don't need to get defensive about this. We just need to listen to it and say, well, is that me? Is that us? Are we like that? Are we a place, are we a community where the light of Jesus is dimmed because we are so caught up with the way people look and because of the way people look or the right education they have or the right zip code they live in or all of those kinds of things are so important to us that the spiritual needs of those who come here don't really matter? Is that true of us? And if so, we repent of it and ask that God would transform our community even as he transforms our individual hearts. The passage ends with a word of grace. Thank God for that. 
If you really keep the royal law upon the scripture, the royal law, I mean, there's a big one, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin. You're convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Think about that, right? And in case we don't quite get it, James is going to help us understand. He said, he who said, God says, you know, don't commit adultery. He also said, don't murder. But if you don't commit adultery and do commit murder, you're a lawbreaker. So it goes on. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gets freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If we are a community where favoritism marks any part of our life together, we are breaking the law of God. The same way as someone who is unfaithful to a marriage partner, the same way as someone who takes a human life has broken the law of God. We are law breakers guilty before God and in need of the mercy of God Almighty in need of the forgiveness that only God can bring and the transformation he wants to see in our lives. Thank God for those last words that are the message of hope for individuals and for communities that sometimes struggle with favoritism. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God's mercy triumphs over judgment. And the truth of the gospel is that God is building a community where the cross of Jesus and the message of hope and life in him is so significant and the glory of Jesus shines so brightly that it does not matter the kind of wardrobe you can afford and wear. And it does not matter how complete or incomplete your education is. And it does not matter how pure your ethnic bloodlines are. And it does not matter how prestigious your zip code is or the character of your last name. All that matters is that you are an individual who is part of a group that have said together, we are together sinners saved by the grace of God. We will keep our focus on who Jesus Christ is and his glory, and we will work together on three simple words at Elmhurst Church, doing our best to listen to and live by the truth, show no favoritism. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. It seems easy to say, and then James just sort of hits us right between the eyes with an example of what we think when we see somebody we don't like or that we would like to like because they look good. God, you know how deeply these things can rest in us and that it can be a struggle for us. And I just pray for the grace of your Holy Spirit so that we can, in every way, reflect Jesus, that nothing here would diminish his glory that, Lord Jesus Christ, you would be honored, you would be the light that shines brightest in not only my life, but the life of the congregation of which, by your grace and mercy, I am part. 
So continue to shine on Elmhurst Church. And we pray that mercy may triumph over judgment in this congregation as well. In the name of Jesus, amen. There are so many ways to respond to the word of God, to respond in our living, respond in our believing, respond in our giving. We're going to worship God with an offering at this time, an offering that supports the ministry of this congregation and the furthering of the kingdom of God. So be generous as you give. Thank you. 